Hey, y'all, it's Marty. I wanted to bring you an update on this episode with Jacques and Claudine Pepin. After we recorded and initially published this episode, Jacques's wife, Gloria, passed away. He talks about her quite a lot in this episode, and she was truly an amazing woman. The love of his life, for sure. All of us at Homemade wanted to express our condolences to the Pepins. I hope you enjoy this episode, especially as Jacques and his daughter Claudine talk about the importance of food and family. At that time, she stood there and I said, okay, give me a spoon, okay, give me that, help me wash the salad. Okay, take her to the garden, I said, get me some parsley, no, that chive, taste it, no, that parsley, that chive, that's tarragon. And then take her to the market, and in the market, they get me some pear, make sure they are ripe. Did you smell them? You think they are ripe? Those tomatoes, you think they are ripe? Come back to the house, and she helped me in the kitchen. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. One of the reasons for this podcast is to inspire us all to cook more and to give you confidence to try new recipes in your own kitchens. One of my guests today has been inspiring us to cook for decades. I understand that Jack wants to show us his muscles today. Oh, yes, here he is. Yeah. Oh, I got more here. I got the big muscle, the wild one, and I got cultivated muscle. And we have all kinds of oysters with strange shapes, weirdly colored clams, and shrimp with and without the shell. This is the shellfish day. Let's start cooking. From his popular Julia and Jock television series with Julia Child to his cookbooks and his video series on social media, Jock Pepin, the legend, continues to inspire and teach generations of cooks. And by his side, as she's been for such a long time, is his daughter Claudine, also a cookbook author and television star. Chef Pepin has a very timely new cookbook called Jacques Pepin Quick and Simple that's on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm so excited to welcome him and Claudine to Homemade. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. I am such a big fan and I have been for a long, long time. I know you do not need an introduction. You are the GOAT, the greatest of all time. So let's just run a few accolades here. Chef, professor, author, TV pioneer, artist. Emmy winner. You've got the Legion of Honor Award. You have a Lifetime Achievement Award for like 24 Beard Foundation Awards. But I think most of all, most of us know you as the guy who comes on our TV and teaches us French cooking and lovely recipes and easy techniques. So from all your fans all over the world, thank you for that. You've helped us be better cooks. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Claudine, we've watched you grow up. Before we really dig into the new book, I want to talk to you a little bit about your foundation, because I know that's super important to you. And so, Chef, you and Claudine and your son-in-law have started the Jacques Pepin Foundation. Can you tell me a little bit about what your mission is? Well, I probably would let Claudine explain to you, because I'm there cooking, and, you know, I've done 13 series of 26 shows. So I have so many book and tape of technique how to peel an asparagus or one out a chicken that this is what Rolly, my son-in-law, and Claudine decided to take 
and create the foundation, which Claudine will tell you exactly what the foundation is all about. Go ahead, Claudine. So a few years ago, my husband and I started a foundation in my father's name so that we could help existing community kitchens teach people culinary and life skills in order for them to get jobs. It's pretty simple. We didn't think that it would be a really smart thing to say, oh, you know, we're the Jacques Pépin Foundation. Instead of going to your local community kitchen, come see us. I think that that's kind of rude because if somebody takes the time and has the knowledge to create a community kitchen in their city, town, neighborhood, they know what that township needs much more than we ever do. So what we do is we do fundraising and we provide grants and equipment because every kitchen is different. Every community kitchen teaches a different group of people. Some people are formerly incarcerated. Some are mostly women. I mean, it really depends on the area. And there was one kitchen that was really well equipped, but the majority of their students were homeless. And the problem was these wonderful people couldn't clean their uniforms and their clothes to come to class. Oh. So all they wanted was a commercial washer and dryer, which my husband called and got them a commercial washer and dryer because that's what they need. So it's really specific to whatever organization we're trying to help and we're working with. Now, during this time, we've pivoted a little bit in our fundraising efforts to do more things online. And we have been able to successfully use my father's artwork. We made posters and, you know, we're just trying to do everything we can so that we can continue the mission. And we've still granted almost $75,000 this year. So very proud of that. I think that's a wonderful mission. And I, I know your dad is very proud of you. And I have to say, I love the fact that you can get the artwork because I'm a big fan of your artwork, Chef. Oh, thank you. Well, the actual artwork is jacquepepinart.com. Right. So that's a separate thing. And that's beautiful works and they're giclés and it's really high quality reproduction and they're numbered and signed and so on. What we did for the foundation is quite different. Posters. Posters. But they're really nice posters. <laughs> Maybe not everybody can do a, a signed print, but can contribute enough to get a beautiful poster. A chef, uh, that brings me to a question about the art while we're on this subject. Has this been something you've been doing all along? I remember that I saw an episode of something where I saw these books that you've been keeping for decades with your drawings and menus and guest lists. Yes, I mean, we have been married 54 years. And from the beginning of our marriage, we decided at some point we had a house upstate New York, the Catskill, when people came to record the menu, what we ate and all that. And I started doing illustration out, very often chicken and very often flowers and so forth. Claudine can tell you that a few weeks ago she came to the house and wanted to know what she had on her second or third birthday. So she looked at that. We have 12 books like this over 50 years. So this is our whole life in there. I mean, from my mother to my brother to many, many people who are gone, it's a great memory to do in those venues. And because of that, I decided to draw a book of menu, which is being sold by Houghton and Mifflin also. I did about 100 menu drawing for people to buy, for people to write their own menu into those drawings. You know? So we have always done that. And many, many years ago, I think in the mid-60s, I remember taking a class at Columbia University. I was there going at the time in sculpture and drawing. Uh, and I think that's about the only class I ever took. 
But eventually, we all moved. We decided to take a house over the weekend, a whole bunch of friends in Woodstock, New York. And it's an artist colony. So we all started redoing all furniture and panning and uh, drawing and doing all that type of stuff. And since then, I've always worked on this. And in fact, we have a show coming up in March or April in Stanford, Connecticut at the Museum. This. Oh, wonderful. I want to go back to your earliest roots and talk a little bit about your mom and where you're from in France and the fact that you did your very first apprenticeship when you were 13 years old. Uh Well, uh, actually, I left home when I was 13, and that was way before you were born, in 1949. So uh, I left home, but home was actually a restaurant. My mother had a little restaurant. Actually, in the family in France, Claudine can tell you, I can count 10 to 12 restaurants owned by uh, my cousin, by aunt, uh, mother, all women. I was the first male to go into that business. So it's all women who run the type of little restaurant and the type of food that often Americans do not associate with French cooking. Because often in America, French cooking is seen through the eye of the Michelin Guide restaurant, so the great chef of France. But remember, there is only 20 or 22 three-star restaurants in France, and there is 160,000 restaurants in France. Even in France, many people in my family have never eaten in a three-star restaurant. So uh, very often, people don't realize that the type of cooking that people eat normally is similar to what I did in that book or what my mother used to do. Very simple, straightforward cooking. And this is where I started in Lyon. And eventually I moved to Paris and eventually moved to America. Yes, you came to America in 1959, I think. Right, that's it. Yeah. Oh, you've done your homework. (laughs) Well, I did do my homework, but I didn't have to do a lot of homework because I followed you since. I can't even remember when I first started. Claudine, do you remember your grandmother? Do you remember cooking with your grandmother? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. Starting at the age of, I don't know, three or four. I basically would summer in France with my grandmother and we would do stuff together. We'd go to the market together. We would cook together. We would do the dishes together. We would do everything together. She had this really cool garden. So you'd walk out the back door and there was a ground level patio and you'd walk upstairs and there were two sides to the garden and then a really pretty lawn and stuff. And it was really fun. And she would have a garden up here and if it was the right time of year, we would go and dig potatoes and she would just like rub the skin off and put it in a skillet with butter. And I promise you, you have never had anything better in your whole life. Just right out of the garden, a little potato that's this big, sauteed just right in butter. And oh, it was so good. And a, and a steak, like a super, super thin steak. And my grandmother liked her steak rare, but like rare, like you might still need a fork to catch the steak because it was still moving. Right. So we we would have a super rare steak and these potatoes and a green salad. And it was just it's still like one of the best meals ever. And now, chef, you do the same thing with Shori, your granddaughter. You take her to your garden, you cook with her, you have her in your kitchen. Yes. I mean, certainly when she was small, but I did the same thing with Claudine. When she was a couple of years old, I hold her in my arm and she stirred the pot. As long as she stirred the pot, she, quote, made it. So she was going to eat it. So you have to get the kid involved. So when Shore was small, uh, I had a little stool 
next to me at the counter in the kitchen. Not now, because now she's taller than me. But uh, at that time, she stood there and I said, okay, give me, a, give me a spoon, okay, give me that, help me wash the salad. Okay, take her to the garden. I said, get me some parsley. No, that's chive. Taste it. No, that's parsley. That's chive. That's tarragon. And then take her to the market. And in the market, they get me some pear. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell them? You think they are ripe? Those tomatoes, you think they are ripe? Come back to the house, then she helped me in the kitchen. So, you know, that creates a background against which we start talking, not only about the food, but then, of course, when we enjoy the food, sitting down together, and that creates a conversation. Because very often, what do you talk to a teenager who has a, you know, an iPhone in their hands and so forth? For us, cooking and the kitchen itself has been a canvas onto which we can develop conversation and talk about. So the structure of the family is very, very important for us. And this is done very often in the context of cooking, the kitchen and so forth. You know, I garden also, and my father and my mom did. And I always feel like kids were more likely to eat the food if they had a hand in either growing it or cooking it. Yes. You know, I have given classes in part of the country where the kid think that uh, a chicken is rectangular with plastic on top. It doesn't have any feet, doesn't have any head or anything like this. So, you know, it's good to go back a bit to modern nature. I remember doing that in Hunter when we were there with the, the do you remember that, Claudine? That was, I think it was your, uh, in your class, it was in primary school. Yeah, I remember my dad made mayonnaise and I remember like the kitchen was like this tall because I was a little kid. And my dad said, where does mayonnaise come from? And this one little kid said, a jar. <laughs> so, right. so he made mayonnaise <laughs> for the kids to taste. And he made some other stuff. I don't remember the other things, but I distinctly remember the mayonnaise. And he always made crepes when I was little, like when he was home, because he traveled a lot. But when he was home, Never very early. We're not very early morning people. But, you know, at like 10, 11 for breakfast, he would make crepes. And that was like a big special thing. And then when Shori would come over, then he would always make crepes. In fact, he fed her her first solid food. It was a baked apple. He baked the apple. And then I was everywhere except for in her mouth. But, you know, that was her first solid food. <laughs> I think I remember in that class, too, I did a cake and I filled up a bag with pastry cream. Oh, yes. Or buttercream, whatever. And they all come in a row, one after the other. Yeah, like little birds with our mouths open to get like yeah. mouthful of pastry cream. Oh, that's a wonderful memory. Coming up after the break, we talk about soup and the unexpected ingredient you can use to thicken it. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan. My guests today are Jacques and Claudine Pepin. You know, back to the point from earlier where we were talking a little bit about your mom and the roots of your type of cooking. And it's very rustic and very basic. The ingredients shine and you have some fairly simple techniques. When you were talking about the potatoes earlier, is that the 
Persiad. Right, right. Is that that? Yeah, right. Can you walk us through that recipe? I know that that's something that everybody can do quite easily at home. Well, I can walk you through it if you send me the page. Otherwise, I'll do it this way, but it may not be the same thing. I never remember what I cooked. That's okay. I think I think in the book, <laughs> I think in the book, I did it actually with cooked potato. Yeah, you did. Yes. Cut into thick slices like that and brown in butter and oil on each side in a heavy skillet, and then you finish it with a persillade. Persillade is French is persil is parsley and I is garlic. So persillade is a mixture of parsley and garlic. And this is basically the signature of home cooking, the persillade. My mother would do tomato, put persillade on top, potato, persillade on top, a piece of fish, persillade on top, a steak, persillade on top. So, so yeah, people look at me often as the quintessential French chef. And after over half a century in America, I'm probably the quintessential American chef. Uh, you know, my wife, born in New York from a Puerto Rican mother, Cuban father. So you may see a black bean soup with banana and cilantro on top or a southern fried chicken or a lobster roll from Connecticut. So right. I don't really try or not try to be French or not. But uh, I think that the food we have in there kind of reflect the type of thing that we eat at home, which is relatively very simple. Yeah. Yes. It seems like during this time, you've spent a lot of time cooking at home for your wife, yourself, the family, and keeping the recipes quite simple. Uh, yes, I did notice that you had all kinds of recipes in your new book. Anything you could want. You have Asian flavors and all kinds of things. And But I love the quick and simple recipes from your childhood, like the sopa uh, a la vermicelli. I'm going to butcher that. Yeah, I love that one. And I make it, but I didn't know it was a thing. I thought it was just something I did. But I know it's something that your family has always done. Oh, yeah. Claudine likes it from her grandmother yeah. more than mine. That's true. <laughs> Tell everybody what it is. It's basically a really good chicken stock and vermicelli noodles. And that's it. I mean, and then you can embellish on that. And if you want to add leeks or carrots or broccoli or whatever you want to add to it, you're welcome to do that. I put scallion in it. Too. There you go. Yeah. But the classic soup of said in my family is chicken stock and vermicelli noodles. That's it. And it literally takes like three minutes and you have dinner. Right. And uh, you do a lot of soups, I noticed, Chef. What is your favorite soup? Well, the favorite soup is probably what my wife called the fridge soup. That is, I open the fridge and there is half a carrot and a piece of zucchini and some wilted uh, lettuce and uh, all that stuff which goes into a skillet, uh, into a pot with chicken stock or water and chicken base. And we finish it with a handful of uh, couscous or vermicelli or um, anything, or even oatmeal. So uh, and to thicken it a little bit and that's it. Yes. So, uh, yeah, we do soup. And also I have to say that, you know, I'm turning 85 and my metabolism is not the same as it used to be many years ago. So as a young chef, often you tend to add and to add to the plate. Now I kind of uh, remove, remove from the plate to be left with something more essential and not too much embellishments anymore. So uh, basically soup is a, is a big thing that we have. I mean, last night we had tomato soup that I had, uh, because when I do it, sometimes I do it enough to freeze a couple of containers. And I think the night before we had another type of soup, 
Well, I think we had the soup that I did with the turkey's bone and with vermicelli and leek, whatever. So, and yeah. I love the one with the lima beans and the sausage. And I noticed you add a lot of bread to soup. Yeah. Is that the, so like oatmeal would be the thickening component when you add bread? Uh, well, no, uh, usually if I add bread, I wouldn't add anything else, but uh, I never throw out bread. In fact, I did something for Claudine for Facebook on bread last week. She hasn't shown it yet to say that we never, never throw out bread. So I got a piece of a, a baguette, which was four or five years, four, 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 five days old. So it was a little hard. So I showed them how to take a piece of the baguette, slice it in half. You run it under water one second and I put it in the toaster a couple of times. Then it becomes nice and fresh and crispy again to make a sandwich. And then the other piece of baguette, the whole piece, I wet it again and you put it into the oven. 20, 25 minutes, 400, and it's like fresh, uh, very crunchy. You have to use it. Yeah, you can only do that once. If I had other bread, I made breadcrumb with it. I made crouton. I made anything you want, but we never throw out bread. She really don't throw out anything. You use everything in the kitchen. Yes. Right. I'm very miserly in the kitchen. And that I learned from my mother. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you learned that from Julia, because I had Dory Greenspan on the show and she told a funny story about Julia, that when she was working with Julia, if a dish went to the sink with one tablespoon left of batter in it, she would retrieve it and get the get the last of it out of the bowl and make sure you got every tiny little smidgen out. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a kid during the war, uh, we didn't have that much to eat. So believe me, everyone, any cook, and you know, it's part of tradition. And Julia learned in France, and in France, a good French cook is going to be very miserly in the kitchen. There is no place in the world like in America, where you throw a third of the food or whatever, you go to China, you go to West Africa, you go to South America, anywhere that I've been in the world, a cook are very, very miserly in the kitchen. At some point, I work at the Russian Tea Room in New York, and I was crazy. When I go in a professional kitchen, the first thing that I go, I go to the garbage to see what's in the garbage, what they throw out. And there, for example, you get a bunch of asparagus, they cut the top, throw the rest out. A case of lettuce came, they take the center out, throw the rest out. And the reason is that I had three people at the stove and we did a thousand people a day. If I had told people you have to peel the asparagus, I probably would have been assassinated in the, <laughs> in the storeroom. Right. The point is that in America, very often, food is very cheap and labor is expensive which is not the case in other part of the world. So, you know, the owner would say, I'm not paying $12 an hour for someone to wash the lettuce. Just take the center up, throw the rest out. You know, that type of thing. That's not the case in any other part of the world except here, you know. And also to that point, quite frankly, when you're working in a restaurant, your restaurant, if you're lucky, you're running at 20% food cost, right? So if there's two tablespoons of batter, and that happens over the course of a week. Every single day, there's two tablespoons of batter. That adds up to real dollars at the end of the month. So, you know, really scraping the bowl and scraping out the pan to get the sauce or the juice or the batter, or, you know, whatever it is, really is a very cumulative process that ends up meaning dollars in the bank or dollars in your pocket. I couldn't agree more. I know in my own kitchen, it's getting rid of you know, half of what I've just bought at the store is important to my budget. But I have learned a lot from you, Chef, about 
how to use those little broken bits and the parts that maybe aren't so beautiful to make my stocks and make soups and things that maybe don't require the most perfect ingredients. Yeah, but you know, economy in the kitchen is extremely important. Our economy there, but economy of motion as well. When I do those videos that Claudine shows, there is two people in the kitchen. Tom Hopkins take the video with uh, a dear friend of mine and me in the kitchen. I cook and do my dishes, cook, do my dishes. There is two people. Now, I may use the food processor five times before I wash it because I know I have to use the food processor to make, let's say, breadcrumbs. So I start with breadcrumbs, so I throw it out. Then maybe some chopped mushroom that I don't have to wash it. At some point, I have to wash it. When I do a pot, I just finish it up. I rinse it briefly because I know I'm going to reuse it in two, three minutes and so forth. I peel things right on top of the garbage can or whatever. So, you know, those economy of motion make your life easier in the kitchen. And it's a very important part of uh, learning how to cook. I think people struggle when they say, I don't like to cook. I think it's just basically because they struggle with simple ways of doing things and easy techniques to help them. I think this book can really help people. Because you you do economize everything from the techniques to the recipes. You make everything a little quicker and faster and more simple, which means it will be more fun in the end. And this is the reason why my son-in-law, Rolly, has done on Instagram and all that, taking all of the technique, the many, many sort of technique that I've done from peeling a carrot to doing something like that, to put them in that, to teach in the kitchen those basic techniques to make your life easier. Because remember that when you're in a restaurant, it's not like home. It's 11 o'clock, and now at 12 o'clock, there is 80 people sitting down for lunch. So it's a question of doing it. You have to move. You have to do it fast. Otherwise, you cannot survive. So, you know, those techniques become very important. And all of that video is available for free on my father's foundation. You know, so many of the guests that I've had on this program, on this homemade podcast, have talked about the influences of Julia on them growing up, especially the female chefs. And many of them have said that that was their first initiation into cooking is watching Julia and watching you on television. And it inspired them to become chefs. I'm sorry if I ruined your life. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think all these years later, she would think about that fact that she is still influencing the next generations of chefs up and coming and especially female chefs? I think she would be very happy. Yeah, I think she would be because, you know, Julia, I met her in 1960. When I started doing show with her, she always told me, you're too serious. You know, this is television. You have to smile. And and it's true. She was absolutely right to say that you have to show people that cooking is fun. But, you know, even for that, at the end of each of the show, she would say, okay, what did we teach them today? There was always a teaching element, which was important. You know? I wondered which one of you brought the campy, fun, quirky, like coming out with a fire extinguisher or something like that. Was that you or was that her? That's what the bottle of wine you did that. <laughs> After a bottle of wine. I love the fact that you always ended your show with a nice glass of wine or a drink and a toast. Yeah, we we always did, except when we had Jess Jackson, because the show was sponsored with Kendall Jackson. He was a friend of mine. They flew from California to come to her house and look at one of the show to take us out for dinner after. So on that day, 
uh, I cook whatever we cook that day. We drank wine. And at the end, I told Julia, uh, what, what do you want? Do you want a Merlot with that or a bit of caviar? And she said, I want a beer. So <laughs> <laughs> she wanted a beer because the sponsor who does wine was here. So that was Julia. Yeah. Well, so tell me your favorite Julia story. Uh, uh, there's a million of them. I know that would be hard to pick one. And I want both of you to tell, share with us your favorite story of Julia Child. Go ahead, Titin. I don't know if I could actually pick a favorite story of Julia. I think one thing that I remember having happen was we were all in Aspen at Food and Wine, which my dad and Julia and I would go to, and my dad and I would do demonstrations, or my dad and Julia, and it was a whole big thing. And we were at a restaurant that had just opened and so it was pretty new and they were working out the kinks and so on. And the sprinkler system exploded. Oh, yeah, in the I remember. <laughs> right before we were going to get our main course and everything got soaked. But we had a ton of appetizers on the table. Now the chef was just humiliated, distraught. And just because, I mean, whole kitchen soaked. And my dad and Julia in particular said, just come sit down with us, have a glass of wine. We have bread, we have cheese, we have pate, we have all the stuff you sent. We have more than enough food. Nobody's going to die of starvation. Open up a bottle of wine. And this kid was so like, he was like shaken, but he was so relieved because all she, she said to him, she was like, if your kitchen had not exploded like this, you would not be able to sit with us at the table. Like she had a way of just making you feel good about whatever disaster happened. <laughs> that is a wonderful story. But you know, I knew Julia before I knew Claudine. Of course, Claudine wasn't born. So since Claudine was born, she knew Julia and imitated her voice. So I remember my wife Gloria and I eating at the table and Claudine would come and imitate Julia. So I remember one time, the telephone rang and Gloria picked it up and she said, okay, Claudine, stop it. We're eating. What do you want? And all of a sudden she said, no, no, I'm sorry, Julia. No, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll get him right away. So her imitation is very good. <laughs> yeah. All right, Claudine, you're going to have to do that for us. Let's hear it. Oh, I have to stand up if I do that. Okay, stand <laughs> up. Let's hear it. So, yeah, so she would call us go, hello, this is Julia Childs. Is Jacques there, please? And it was hysterical because she would actually tell you who she was. Because like you wouldn't know, like you wouldn't know. But yeah, that's the only imitation I can do. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. I loved it. I think that America relates so well with the two of you in the kitchen, Jacques, because of your banter and sometimes your disagreements. And one of my favorite disagreements was the black pepper versus the white pepper. There was so many episodes where she would say, you'd say, what kind of pepper? And she'd look at you like, you know what kind of pepper? And you said, but I like black, so I'm putting the black. So what... <laughs> What is the big difference between the white pepper and the black pepper? And why did she always want to use white pepper? For the color, for the look. But, but because otherwise, you know, peppercorn, the green peppercorn, black peppercorn, white peppercorn is the same berry. The green peppercorn is unripe berry, so it has a lot of taste with less heat. The black peppercorn is the berry with the shell on the outside, so in my opinion, it has more taste. And by the time you wait it, and uh, wash it, you remove that shell on the outside, so you have the center of the berry, the white peppercorn. 
What people don't realize is that we did not have any recipe. It took probably at least two years by the time we finished the show for the book to come out because it was Random House. Keep calling us, someone to know, what did you do that day? What did you put in that dish? And so forth, which we didn't remember anyway, to create the book. Because as I said, there was no recipe when we started cooking. We just started cooking and arguing and so forth, which was easier because we could put anything we wanted. And certainly, uh, we always taste. We cook, we taste. And Julia would say, taste, I would taste. She said, what do you think? I said, I think it needs salt. She would taste it. said, no, it's fine. And next time, you know, she said, taste, I would taste. I said, I think it's fine. She said, it needs salt. And she would add salt. <laughs> always did that. So Everybody's going to have a different opinion. I wash the chicken. You don't wash the chicken. I mean, I love those little arguments between the two of you. And I think that's what made America fall in love with you because it was very real. Very, very, very real. Okay. I've heard you say many times, the reason the restaurant chefs cook so well is because repetition. They make things over and over and over again. And many times a home cook will go to a book. They'll make something once, they won't have success, and they won't try it again. So what are maybe three things that people could maybe try to make over and over again that they could master and become good at? Well, you know, to start with, certainly, uh, it's important, especially for beginner cook, to give them something to do which is easy and bring their confidence up. So uh, I would say that to start by doing a vinaigrette that I have in there that Claudine does at home. Very often I do it when I have leftover, like a, a, a jar of mustard, the French mustard, I have a little bit, one or two tablespoons left in it. Then salt, paper, two, three tablespoons of vinegar, fill it up with olive oil, shake it, put it in your refrigerator, you have vinaigrette for one week. And you know that it's good, fresh, and uh, takes second to do. Yeah. You just have to remember to take it out of the refrigerator about 15, 20 minutes before you're going to use it because obviously the olive oil separate um, when it's cold. It's cold. So you just have to let it let it get to room temperature. But yeah, this way, who buys salad dressing? This is good. All right. So we make a homemade dressing. What, what other two things could we do? Soup. The soup of vermicelle that Claudine the soup. Okay. told you that would be good too. Another thing which is very easy and uh, my type of thing. Uh, I did a pear, an apple, gratin, Gloria. You know, I had a, a pear left over, an apple, cut it into pieces. And when I was in a restaurant, I would go through the kitchen in the morning to pick up leftover cake, any cookie leftover, croissant, pain au chocolat, danish, all of that stuff. That I would cut, I, I would break down with the pear or the apple and some uh, raisins and some melted butter, cinnamon, and you do the apple brown berry, which is really good. So something like that would be very easy to do and very good. And Claudine, you have any other suggestions? Um, I think that you really should learn how to master eggs. I think eggs are great. They're inexpensive and they can be for lunch. They can be for dinner, breakfast, if you're so inclined. So I think that making eggs, and my dad did pretty recently something that looks like it's a French omelet. So you start with potatoes. It's almost very frittata-like. So you can have that for dinner with a salad, and you don't have to spend a lot of money on protein, and it's good for you, and it's healthy, it's flavorful, and it's comforting. So I would say, you know, mastering a few dishes with eggs would also be good. Not just sunny side up eggs or an omelet, which are great, but also that more complete meal that has eggs in it. I think that's a great idea. Just like you do with your fridge soup, you can do a fridge omelet. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, you always end with happy cooking. I love that. Yeah. What's your best advice for the home cook? How do we make cooking as much fun as it seems to be for you and Claudine and your family? Have somebody else do the dishes. I have a lot of wine. Bring a bottle of wine. <laughs> People tell me I don't know how to cook. I said, do you have a friend who cook? She said, yes. I said, next time you go to his house or her house, bring a bottle of wine. Say, can I come an hour ahead and help you in the kitchen? So you come an hour ahead, you open the wine, you drink it. And frankly, if the chicken is a bit burned, who cares? After the bottle of wine, <laughs> everything is fine. That's Just relax. wonderful advice. I think that's great. And even if you do know how to cook, it's still good advice. I couldn't sleep last night because I was nervous about this interview and I was so excited for it. So at two o'clock in the morning, I went into the kitchen and I made your mom's souffle, your cheese souffle. No kidding. No, I did. Yeah. And I opened a bottle of champagne and I waited for the omelet to finish and I drank some champagne and I listened to French music. And I will never forget that, really. I'll remember it the rest of my life wow. because I, I was cool. so, so nervous, but so excited to have both of you on and talk to you. It's been a real honor and a real privilege as we kick off this wonderful new book, Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple. Y'all, please buy it and follow along on Facebook and watch his videos. You can learn so much just from that. I picked up the technique for the omelet from watching you, and I made it perfectly. Came out just perfect, and I was so pleased. Good. So everyone, if you want to learn to cook and you don't know how, Go to the Jacques Pepin Foundation website. You'll be able to see videos there and you can learn anything you want to learn. American food, French food and anything in between. Right. Exactly. But the most important thing is to get in the kitchen and just start cooking. I'll drink to that. Happy cooking. Chef, happy <laughs> cooking. Claudine, thank you both so much. Oh, thank you very much, you Marty. Very Have much. a great day and a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. The same to all of you and your family. Thank you. Bon appétit! Bon appétit! <laughs> I so love talking to Jacques and Claudine Pepin. You can find videos, recipes, and more on the Pepin Foundation's website at jp.foundation. And check out his art at jacquespepinart.com. I personally get a lot of new recipes from watching his daily videos on Facebook. Most of these are recipes that you'll find in his new book, Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple. And of course, you can follow him on Instagram as well. Okay, y'all, you do not want to miss our next show because we have the barefoot contessa herself, Ina Garden. You know, everybody brought all these vegetables, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, and, and what they really wanted was a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> so it really gave me a way to connect with people, and it also gave me every day I would make something from my pantry, as everybody was doing, and post it with a suggestion about what you can do. And it gave me purpose and order when I was kind of floundering around about, like, how am I going to get through this? Ina's got some great tips for thriving during the holidays and for cooking simple but delicious meals from your pantry during quarantine. We're also going to talk about her new cookbook, Modern Comfort Food. It's so timely. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. 
Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.